Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Francie, and I'm the CEO and managing partner of the Real Estate Investment Network. In addition to being a business owner, I'm also a real estate investor. I'm a coach, a husband, recently a grandfather. Now, along with that, I'm also committed to stretching beyond what I've achieved by continuing to elevate in living a fulfilled life by making a positive difference in my world. I'm going to invite you to join me as I delve into the details of the many wins of my guests in achieving their goals, along with, shall we say, the frustrations of the occasional deal gone wrong, because my guests are here to help you learn by talking about what's real for them in business and investing in real estate, from the life they're now able to live to the person they become along the way as they pursued their dreams in having the freedom they've gained by building a sustainable financial future for them and their family. Good day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this episode of the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. Now, before I introduce my next guest, I want to start by first thanking you, the listeners, for all of your feedback to the show and to continue to remind you and even encourage you to send your comments, your suggestions for the show or your questions that you may have directly to me at CEO at RainCanada.com, CEO at R-E-I-N-Canada.com. I look forward to getting those suggestions and taking a look at them and answering your questions. And so please do that. Any feedback is appreciated. As well, if you're inclined, perhaps you could go on, rate the show, and provide some comments on iTunes, SoundCloud, sign up on the Everyday Millionaire Facebook page, and uh, engage in that community. So thank you in advance for whatever you choose to do in that regard. Okay, so let's get this show started. My guest today is Jane Blofus. She is a best-selling author, an international speaker, She's a business coach, an entrepreneur, a real estate investor. And, you know, to be honest with you, she's far more than any or all of that. Today, Jane and I are going to delve into the incredibly important, however often difficult and even rarely discussed question of how prepared we are, or specifically how prepared you are, which is to say statistically likely not prepared for the possibility of a devastating life event such as a sudden long-term disability or much bigger than that, of course, would be sudden death of a significant other in your life, a husband, a wife, a business partner, or even what would be the fallout and the challenges that for those that you leave behind should you uh, lose your life, get hit by the proverbial bus, if it will. You know, we shudder to think it could happen to us, but guess what? The reality is, as you know, that it can happen And certainly for many people, it has happened. And the question we're going to dig into today is what is the scope of challenges we face if we're not prepared for the possibility of that happening? And how do we prepare? Where do we even begin? Now, I've facilitated many conversations, many meetings with literally hundreds of real estate investors and entrepreneurs on this specific topic, wills and estates, and who's on the will? How do I make that all come together? How do I communicate with my significant other? Are we on the same page? And consistently I hear and see that we're not. 
That is why I've invited Jane to the show, and that is what we're going to engage in the conversation today about the preparedness. Lots of value in this conversation, I believe. So a bit about Jane before we get started. Jane Blaufus is the best-selling author of her book called With the Stroke of a Pen, Claim Your Life. Her book has become recognized as one of the most comprehensive, actionable, personal, and financial planning resources available today on the market for families, for individuals, and even business owners. She was the inspiration, and part of her book provided us the design for Rainvest, which gives our members access from a real estate investor's point of view to the questions that they need to have answered for future planning. Now, Jane brings to the table over 25 years of insurance expertise as a financial advisor, a sales manager, and an executive responsible for the development and delivery of recruiting and selection processes and sales and marketing training to literally thousands of people in the sales force. Today, she's the principal of the Blofus Group, Inc., based in Ontario, Canada, where she consults extensively into the financial service industry. She is a highly sought-after international keynote speaker, delivering the highly rated million-dollar roundtable session in Vancouver 2016, and she was featured on the main platform at the million-dollar roundtable session peak 2017 convention in Patea, Thailand in March. Jane is a frequent guest expert on both national television and radio, a Huffington Post blogger as well as one of their faculty members. She's a recommended speaker and a coach for the Hoopus Performance Network. And her reputation and expertise makes her an influential coach to many entrepreneurs and sales professionals. Jane simply believes that to excel in today's marketplace, the key to success is relationship building. And she not only talks the talk, she walks the walk. She's here to share her story today which is so incredibly impactful. And I look forward to the conversation that we're going to have. So without any further ado, Jane Blofus. Welcome, Jane, to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. I'm excited to have you on the show today, as I am with all my guests. But I want to, first off, because I've read your book, and we're going to talk about your book, and with the stroke of a pen. And I want to hear a little bit about your story, but start if you will, I'd like to start with just if somebody asked you what you're doing, what's your kind of your elevator pitch for what you do these days? My mission in life is to help people to get their personal and financial house in order before um, an illness or a tragedy occurs. So being proactive in that space. You know, it's Mm -hmm. for me, it's a very interesting conversation. I've had it many, many times over the years within the Real Estate Investment Network with our investors. And I'm really looking forward to having a conversation about the guidance that you can provide from your experience and your story, but also the work that you're currently doing and sharing. And I know it's such a big topic. It's sometimes, I guess, a difficult topic for people to, to, you know, to work through, given the fact that, you know, there's some darkness to it. There's there is that dark side or that sad side, that heavy cloud that comes with the death of a family member or planning for that and being proactive around it. And so, you know, I'm just looking forward to hearing your side of how you approach that, because I think it's a really important topic. So let's go back a little bit. I want to go way back and and give us a little bit of an overview of your story about how you got here and, and what led to this, given the way you wrote the book. 
Well, um, I was in the, I, I joined the life insurance industry on April Fool's Day to try it out for one year. I left 27 years later, never figuring out which year it was. And along the way, I uh, met and fell in love with my first husband, and he was a military man. So what happens when you marry a military man? You move. And so I had experiences setting up client bases around Canada, and then I went into uh, sales management, and then I went into running the uh, sales training divisions for three of Canada's largest life insurance companies. But along the way, uh, about 16 years into my career in the life insurance industry, my 39-year-old husband was killed in an accident. And a police officer arrived at my home Sunday afternoon to tell me this news. And so, you know, I, I was in the business. So I foolishly thought that if anything ever happened to me, I would be fine. Wrong. So I was blindsided by so many things that came my way that, Patrick, I just kept saying to myself, if I'm going through all of this with all of my experience, my knowledge, my designation, my expertise, my time working with clients, what in the world does the average person go through? So fast forward, um, I, my daughter, by the way, was 12 and a half when her father passed away. But fast forward, I'm happily remarried to a wonderful man. And he was married to my girlfriend, who thought she had a toothache in September, and we lost her to cancer the following June. So we've got under one roof all of the, you know, two widows and a child who lost her dad. And so going back to my comment about joining the life insurance industry on April Fool's Day, I just followed the bouncing ball and put all the dots together and said, okay, I'm supposed to do something with this. And I've never been a why me person. I've always been a why now what am I supposed to learn from it? And then what am I supposed to do with it? So give me a little bit of background. Now, was your husband was military, so he was military when he was killed in the accident? No, he had actually retired four years earlier at the oh. ripe young age of 35. So he was actually in, um, in the transportation industry at the time. Got it. Now, leading up to that, because, you know, when I look at, and, and as you and I discussed briefly, when we talk about the everyday millionaire and really what I say, ordinary people creating and doing and getting extraordinary results. Take me back even further, you know, prior to the marriage, you know, and prior in, in your in your youth, because you, you're confident, this is many years later, uh, you've been through a lot of tragedy, you've developed, you've shown up and you're showing up in a different way. You're an international speaker, you're an author, you've done some really great things in business, and you've got a very, very strong message. But take me back. Where were you born and raised, and and what did that look like in the early early years when you were twelve and a half, perhaps? Well, it's interesting. I was raised at the knee of an entrepreneurial mother. My parents immigrated to Canada with nothing but the clothes on their back and four suitcases, and started in Montreal. And my mother, um, you know, she wanted to contribute, so she went to um, school to learn how to, you know, make clothes and dresses from scratch on a piece of, you know, brown paper and built her own businesses. I watched her lose at five of them and succeed stellar success on the, the sixth one. So we had a very inclusive childhood with my parents. Like my, I, I was, I was learning about business plans at an early age because my dad was an engineer and helping my mother to put the business plans together to go to the bank to get money. So I was running my, I had two home-based businesses by the time I was 13 and I was babysitting on the side and making more money than most of the kids 
and my class combined were getting an allowance. So I've always had an entrepreneurial streak to me. Then I went into business so that we would have two step, you know, we would have two incomes in the family. Now, of course, the life insurance industry is commission based, so it was a bit of a roller coaster. But I was actually looking to go back into being an entrepreneur just before my husband died. But then, of course, when you become a single parent and you're the one putting the bread on the table and you've got to get you know, your daughter through school and university and all of that, you don't walk away from a steady paycheck. So I finally walked away from a steady paycheck in October of 2008 because I felt like I was dying. I felt like I had... My joy was gone. I, I, my raison d'être wasn't there. I felt like I was shoving a square peg into a round hole. And it was kind of gutsy to do it because the year before my husband stepped out of his corporate job. So in 24 months, we went from two six, high paying six you know, figure salaries to the entrepreneurial roller coaster. And we've loved every minute of it. So I took a year off because I could, because we were financially sound to do it. And that's one of the reasons why we were both able to step off the corporate bus, because we did have our affairs in order. And then I thought, okay, so who do you want to be, girlfriend, when you grow up? What do you want to do? And I, the last thing I wanted to do was go and work for somebody else again. So I made two strategic phone calls to, I have a very large network. I reached out to two key players, and I haven't looked back since. Wow. Now, I, I see in your, as I've read your book and love your book, I want to talk about it some more and just so impactful in so many ways. Your parents you. were from Victoria. Is that is that where they ended up? That's where they ended up. We They went from, they left us in Montreal. It's kind of weird watching the moving truck go down the road. And my sister and I were waving goodbye going, so what's wrong with this picture? I thought we were supposed to leave home. Right. They uh, relocated to Ottawa and then they finally went to Victoria because it reminded them so much of England. So prior to your insurance, you know, the entering the insurance industry, what were you doing leading up to all of that? I had a fashion management degree. The big joke in my house was that I had fabric in my veins instead of blood <laughs> because... My mother, as I said, was a, my mother became a very successful dress designer. Like she was, she she was sought out. Like I went to more Jewish weddings than I ever did Catholic because she dressed more Jewish brides than I think anybody else did. Um, but I was in I was in retail. Mm. I was in retail. That's where I thought my my life was going to go. Isn't it a natural segue to go from retail and fashion to life insurance? Well, it makes perfect sense. Like to me. I, I totally get that <laughs> yeah not okay so not. how did that show up for you how did you know going from fashion and and having that background with your your mom and and then all of a sudden into because I got that the insurance part of it as much as life insurance can be that self-employed kind of entrepreneurial feeling because it is often mostly commission based but I in your role in the agency that you worked with it sounded more like a corporate kind of job. Is that where you started to also find you were getting choked out a bit? Yes and no. I, I joined one of the large life insurance companies in Canada, and they were one of the reasons that I went to them was because they had a very strong training program, and they did give you know some some financial support in the beginning. I had a base, but of course, you know, you always had to draw a commission against it. And I just um, I just really enjoyed 
I love building relationships with people. That's my my whole life. I love building relationships with people. If you stuck me behind a computer and didn't allow me to, to you know, build relationships with people, I'd probably shrivel up and die. So for me, it was it was perfect because I was doing something I love, something I believed in. And along the way, I got an opportunity to be invited to go into management, which I pushed off for a number of years because we were moving around. We started, I started in Montreal, we moved to Trenton, Belleville, then we moved to Ottawa, and then we moved to Winnipeg. So I kept pushing the management piece off because I didn't want to build a team of advisors and walk away from them because it's hard enough to get started in this business. And if you lose the support along the way of someone who said, well, I'll bring you in, I'll train you, I'll develop you, I'll support you. And then they walk away. I didn't quite think that was fair. So then I was given an opportunity to go into head office with another large life insurance company in Winnipeg. And that's when I started getting into the more of the corporate role. So I'm I'm guessing that that corporate role and all of the things that you learned in that industry were also part of what you rely on even today. Lots of training in that. The reason yeah, I, the yeah. reason I bring that up, Jane, is that you know, as the listeners, as many of the listeners on this podcast are entrepreneurial and they do have goals aside from real estate and career development, they you know they they're sometimes looking at their journey and go, where is this all taking me? And I find more and more as I talk to you know, people like yourself, the guests that I have, is that there isn't like this methodical plan that goes into place. It's you are on your journey in life and you hit forks in the road and you have to make decisions and then you bring forward with you that experience. And so there's, there's very few actually guests that I've had on that say, you know, I woke up and I go, this is what I'm going to do and this is how I'm going to make my money and I go forward. And you've had lots of curveballs in your life come at you and forks in the road that you sounds like you've taken. And on the insurance side of it, how did the insurance actual, how did that opportunity show up for you? When, why did you enter the insurance industry? How did it show up for you? Because I was working with a tech, a large textile company in Montreal at the time. And the, <laughs> the vice president of my division was married to the president's daughter and decided that he should step out on her. So the president decided he would fire his ex-son-in-law and close down the division. So I was looking for a job to be quite honest. Mm -hmm. And I was I was on the Montreal uh, Junior Board of Trade. I was one of the directors on the Board of Trade. And my the president of the board, his life insurance advisor, asked him if it, were, there was anybody that he could introduce him to. And he introduced him to me. So I had this very persistent uh, young man who kept calling me and calling me. So I finally went in to, um, quite frankly, get him off my back. <laughs> so that I could, he would stop calling me because I'd met with him. And it opened up a whole new avenue because I bought my first life insurance policy from him. The next, he asked me if he could introduce me to his boss. Next morning at nine o'clock, I had a call from a guy saying, I have this little guy jumping up and down in the corner of my office and he will not leave until you agree to meet with me. And I met with him and that started the journey. Uh, they put me through the ringer. I had to go through 11 different interviews and three um, assessment tests because they wanted to make sure I wasn't jump, just taking the opportunity because I was going to, going to lose my other job. So that's how I began my career in the life insurance industry. 
Wow. So I appreciate the background because as we go forward in the story of, you know, what you've experienced, you're in that industry for a long time, zoom ahead, you know, a number of years later and you lose your husband in an accident. So let's, let's kind of pick up the story from there because, um, as I, I would like to talk about your book, but I want to hear from in your own words, a little bit about that story and how that was for you and, and what, and then we'll, you know, we'll see how it led to where you are today and what you've got going on. Because I think I see a, you know, I see some patterns coming along with this and that, and it's an interesting journey. And I'm, I'm just fascinated by how things happen in people's lives and the resilience that they have and, and how they persevere and come out and go, wow, you know, all of my life, I've got a great life in spite of all that's happened. And, and it's because of all that's happened. So let's just talk about a little bit. Take me back to that time when your husband and you were doing what you were doing. And then, wow, one day somebody walks in the door and your husband's no longer with you. Well, it was very interesting because about two months before he died, he finally said to me, you know what? He said, I think we're going to make Winnipeg our home because you have given up a lot for me. We've, you know, we've dragged you out of your jobs. We've, you've stayed home with our daughter and all of that. So he said, it's my turn now to support you and what you're doing in your career. So he says, he says, you know, I want my daughter to grow up. And, and when she, I walk her down the aisle, I want her to have friends that she's known for years and not somebody she's only known for two minutes. So we'd made the decision that that was going to be home. And, you know, I was blessed, Patrick. I had a wonderful life with him. He was a great husband, great father. He was really, really community oriented. He was big with my daughter's school. He just was larger than life. And, and everybody, he, he just resonated with people. And then um, one weekend, we were getting ready to sort of do a couple of things. My daughter was leaving on the Sunday for her five-week summer vacation with my parents in Victoria. So I had to get her off to the airport. He had a commitment that morning that he had made. And so um, they, you know, they spent some time together before he left. And he came in and said goodbye to me before he left because we were going to go out that afternoon on the motorcycle and have a date and, you know, just start. We had five weeks of dating. We didn't need a babysitter or whatever. So we were pretty excited about that. And I remember on the way home stopping at my favorite coffee shop and just looking up at the sky and going, wow, I'm the luckiest woman in the world. I've got a great family, a lovely home, a great job. You know, I just I couldn't I couldn't have asked for more. And so I went home and I was waiting for him to come home. And um, later that afternoon, a police cruiser came into the cul-de-sac that I lived on. I was talking to my neighbor and it parked in front of his house and he went over and I sat back down. I was painting the fence down the side of my house, waiting for my husband to come home. And the next thing I see is a pol the police officer and my neighbor walking across the lawn in between our two houses towards me. And when I stood up, he addressed me by name, asked me if we could go in the house. And I said, no, where's my husband? And he addressed me by name again and asked me if we could go in the house again. And Patrick, I had this insane notion in my head that if I didn't let him across the threshold and into my house, he wouldn't tell me what I knew he was about to tell me. Mm. And I looked at him again and with tears in his eyes, this baby faced police officer said, ma'am. I regret to inform you that your husband was killed in an accident this morning. And my life as I knew it was never going to be the same again. You know, that's such a, you know, I, in reading the book, it's such a, I can't imagine. And 
comprehend what that feels like and what the thoughts and all those you know i'm i'm sure it's just like it's such a it's such a shock to your system and you describe a little bit in your book um what the kind of roller coaster of emotions was for you from that day going forward for quite some time as you dealt with all the things that you had to deal with and after that when were you inspired to write the book and kind of stand up and say, listen, people, you've got to pay attention to this. This is something that can happen to anybody. I, as I mentioned earlier, I walked out of corporate. I reorged myself out of my job in October of 2008. And I had had, so my husband passed away in 1999, July the 11th, 1999. So it had been a little bit of time since he passed away. And I had this idea for a book rattling around in my head. I don't know why. I think it was the whole, you know, I'm supposed to do something with this. So then I was re I got remarried. I've been with my second husband now for going on 15 years. And I realized that we needed, we came together as a family and realized that we needed to do something. But I didn't I didn't just want to write the book and have people, they mean well. And, you know, it's a subject, as you alluded to earlier, people don't sit around on a Friday night and talk about over drinks and dinner about what's going to happen if they become terminally ill or die tomorrow morning. You know, and as I always say when I'm speaking, if you want to clear, uh, you know, stragglers from a dinner party, don't yell fire, just bring up death. They all go home because nobody wants to talk about it. Mm -hmm. So I thought, okay. So let's put the dots together. I join the insurance industry. I lose my husband. My daughter loses her father. I get remarried to another widow. I've got the experience. I've got the designation. I've got all of this. Okay, what am I supposed to do with it? I go back to my comment about I just didn't want to share the story. I wanted to help people with a call to action, but I wasn't quite sure how to do it. And then I started writing the story on one side. And on the other side, I started putting together a checklist of things that you should do if something happens or what you should talk about before it happens. And one day I went, okay, Jane, you idiot, you've got to put the two of them together in the same book. So share the story, but you have to help people. Because what I want to do is I want to take the fear out of this discussion. Because talking about death is taboo. A lot of people in certain cultures, if you they they don't even want to hear about it because if don't even bring it up because if you talk about it, it will happen. I've had so many people say, Oh, it might happen to you, but it won't happen to me. Might happen to you. So I wanted to help take the fear out of this discussion, equip people with knowledge, because people do not want to appear ignorant and people do not want to get taken advantage of. You know, in in the world of the Real Estate Investment Network, we've, of course, got members across Canada and people who grow great portfolios, build businesses, and we often have breakout sessions at some of our major events. And in those breakout sessions, we'll have legal guys and accountants and financial guys that, you know, are on panels. And we have discussions about tax planning and wills and estates and legacy planning and a lot and those rooms when we have those breakout sessions they are literally jammed with people that are curious and wondering and part of when i do those breakouts i often facilitate those breakouts and i'll ask the question how many people have a will 
And if there's 150 people in a room, and, and often there is, and less than half of them are putting up their hand that they even have a will. And then those that do put up their hand, when I say who has an updated will, let's say within the past two years, guess what? You know, less than half of those hands go up. It's a difficult conversation to have. As a matter of fact, even having this podcast interview with you, I said, you know, I'm, I'm saying to myself, how does this show up for people? It's such an important conversation, but it does and it can feel very, very dark or very heavy. It's like, I don't, I'd prefer not to talk about it. And as I looked at my own situation with my wife, we've, we've done a lot of planning over the years, but we've got a very complicated life, as I'm sure that you have met lots of people. We own several businesses, we own real estate, and it gets very complicated. And keeping track of it is sometimes difficult. It's challenging. And what, what came out of it for in your book was two parts. Number one, you put it on the table saying, we have to talk about the possibility of losing the significant other, the, the spouse in your life. And are you prepared for it? Have you got a plan in place? One of the things that, of course, your book inspired Richard Dole and my partner and I to do was to actually come up with a plan of the steps to take to do that. So that's kind of a long-winded way of saying, all of this conversation is incredibly important. And I would really like that people listening to this understand that there is even an urgency around it because we operate on top of the fact that eh, it will never happen. And what you're saying is it will or it can, not that it will, but it can happen. And when it happens, it's like sudden and you have to prepare for that. There's only two things in life that are certain, Patrick, death and taxes. Yes. And if the if you don't get taxed to death before you go, they'll get you afterwards if you haven't planned properly. Now, you have you went through that whole experience, and in your book, you outlined the things that you had to deal with. Was there a, a top, let's say, when you, when you look at the work that you've done now, having a will is, I mean, that's just only one part of it. I mean, that's not even, is it, is it the biggest part of it, do you think? I, I don't think it is. I think it, collectively, it's only one part of a really big thing. It's, it's one part, but having estate planning done is critical because in my case, um, my husband was piloting a small plane that crashed. It malfunctioned and crashed and three other people died in that accident with him. So in 60 seconds, four families' lives were forever changed that day. Five children lost a parent and four spouses lost their spouse. So in the blink of an eye, the world as four families knew it turned on its head. So within six months of his death, I was served with the first two lawsuits. And within the two-year filing period, I was served with the third lawsuit. The other three families sued everybody that stood still that day. I don't begrudge them. They had lost someone, but so had we. But I, I for 10 years, Patrick, I was in limbo, not knowing whether I was going to be living on the street in a tent because they won the suit, or I was going to be okay. And that's not a pleasant place to be. But we also, the year before he died, ironically, we had updated our wills. So we had an updated, now this is another key thing too, updated and a will drawn up by a lawyer, not done by our, ourselves, not a twenty nine ninety nine yeah. will off the internet. We paid to sit down with the lawyer, and that's what I highly recommend. And so our estate planning was done. We'd also met with our life insurance advisor. We 
I, we'd ironically purchased more life insurance the year before. All our taxes were up to date, everything. Because you're right, it's not just one thing. It's a domino effect. And if your dominoes don't fall in the right direction, you end up with chaos. The, I mean, just even that description of it almost overwhelms me. Well, it's an overwhelming situation to be in. Now, add, add on top of it, I was in shock. Mm-hmm. I, it was like a Mack truck hit me, ran up, backed up and ran over me again just to make sure they got me really good and hard because I had just been delivered this horrible news and your brain has a way of protecting you. And some things I remember and some things I don't think, thankfully I don't, but there's lots I remember. And, you know, my mother, my mother and father had to bring my daughter home the next day on three separate planes. Now, can you imagine what that poor child went through having to get on three separate planes, knowing what had happened to her father the day before? So my parents, God bless them, stayed with me for three months, but I couldn't even tell my mother what vegetable I wanted for dinner when she said, do you want peas or carrots? My whole brain was in a fog. Trying to make simple decisions were beyond me. Yet here I was thrust into the middle of the most horrific decisions of my adult lifehood, and I couldn't even decide what vegetable I wanted for dinner. That in itself is such a strong message that we all need to make sure that we're having these things put in place when we don't have that emotionality. You know, many times as I'm speaking with, you know, the, those rooms, those breakout rooms that we have, when we're talking about these kinds of things, I'm, I'm staring and having conversations with people, looking at people that I know that have extensive portfolios of real estate and joint ventures with partners and different corporations. And it's very, very complicated. The reason I shine a light on that is because I know how complicated you know, my Stephanie and you know, my wife and our life is in terms of what we have for corporate structures and business and real estate holdings. You and your husband were pretty simple, really. I mean, you you didn't have a, a number of businesses. You didn't have a huge real estate portfolio, I don't think. And nope. you, your you know your husband was basically retired or some version of that. But ultimately, it was fairly simple. Yet. This turned into a huge undertaking for you as now a, a widowed wife and and then lawsuits on top of that. Let me just ask about the lawsuits. That becomes a function of the other insurance companies saying, okay, you know, somebody else has got to pay this bill or how did those lawsuits can't come about from, from well, your understanding? The, the family sued um, everyone who stood still that day. I'm not going to get into the details of sure. it, but it was quite it was quite high profile, unfortunately. Mm. And um, they, so I don't know whether the lawyers went to them. They went to a lawyer, as I said. The first two were within six months. The third was within two years. But I, I got count. I sought counsel as well. Of course, I got a lawyer because I remember walking into my. Uh, family room, my sunroom off the back of my house the night everything happened. And my life insurance advisor was sitting there with my, with my husband's best friend, our best friend. And I told them I needed a lawyer and I needed one like fast. And they sort of looked at me kind of funny because I found out afterwards, they'd just been talking about it. And they said, well, yeah, you need a lawyer to help you with the estate. I said, no, I'm in big trouble. I'm, I'm, my brain kicked in enough to know that there were three other people in that plane and he was piloting it. And so I knew there was going to be a problem. 
So my counsel came on board and unfortunately they found a very obscure law that had been introduced in the 1990s that a pilot could be held responsible for the maintenance on a rental plane, go figure. So that that changed a whole bunch of stuff, but um, it just, it, it was horrible. For 10 years, I shook uncontrollably and broke out into a sweat when I either saw a, a, a letter from him, an email from him, got a voicemail from him. Like anytime that lawyer showed up anywhere, I was also dealing with Transport Canada. Like there's all these things that were coming at me. And again, I, I'm, I was in total and utter shock. I was trying to keep my child together. I was trying to keep myself together. I was trying to go back to work. I like, it was, just, it was horrible. I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. Well, I certainly start to see the inspiration and hear the, you know, the reasons for the inspiration behind, you know, writing the book. And the book isn't, you know, just for listeners with the stroke of a pen that Jane has written, it does, she does share her story, but it's also a, in this case, a workbook. It inspired Rainvest, the binder that we put together for our members. It was a huge part of it. We made that Rainvest binder something that will support people in planning because I think in hindsight, what do you do? Like even as people listen to this podcast and go, holy cow, this message is ringing home and I've got to get my, you know, I got to get my act together. I've got to put things in place beyond a will. I mean, where do I start? And your book is pretty thorough in getting into the real nuts and bolts and details of what it is that you have to put in place ahead of time. Because as you've described so vividly for me is your life is in chaos. And then on top of it, because of the nature of the accident, you know, these lawsuits occurred and you're also dealing with that for an extended period of time. So let's go back a little bit because you're also dealing with the emotionality of your daughter. I mean, on top of all of this. Oh, that was the other piece. Um you know, she she didn't want I I I sought counsel. I went I went to see somebody. I and I think it takes more strength to reach out and ask for help than it does to not ask for help. And so I went, I started seeing a therapist and I wanted her to start seeing one because she, I was incapable of being a mom for the first little while after it happened because I could hardly take care of myself. Yeah, to hear, you know, my, my mother took over a lot of the responsibility with her, with the home, with everything. It was terrible for my parents as well because they were grieving the loss of a someone who was more a son than a son-in-law. And so I tried to get her to go and see someone and she just didn't want to go. And I was forcing her to go. And so she says to me, I said, okay, I'm going to go with you to see this therapist with you today. And she, because of her age, I was allowed to sit in on it. Well, I totally understood why she didn't want to go back because this woman sat on the other side of the table, never made eye contact with my daughter and typed every single word she said into a computer. And I thought, okay, we're done here. Mm -hmm. So I ended up having to be my daughter's therapist. And it, that was a hard road for both of us because, you know, she writes with very candidly in the book, and, I, and I'm so proud of her for this. She writes about the fact that she was astute enough at 12 and a half to realize it could only be one emotional wreck in the house and it couldn't be her. It had to be me. So she bottled it all up inside. She kept anytime anybody said to her, how are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. And she was falling apart inside. So, you know, my parents went home after three months and there were many nights, Patrick, 
I got to take a deep breath here. There were many nights when we would be lying on her bed, holding each other and crying. And I started to see the signs with her when she started getting, I call it spinny. I knew she was in trouble. I And so I would force her to the point where I would almost make her break out crying. It's the only way I could get her to talk to me. So we had a really hard time, the two of us trying to get through this together, mm. but we did it. Now, when did things start to shift for you? I mean, the lawsuits are happening. You're dealing with the emotion of it. And so 10 years of lawsuits, I mean, that was emotionally heavy, I'm sure. And and mentally, it would, you know, certainly consume a lot of, you know, brain space around that. When do you when but when did you feel that you started to see some kind of light at the end of the tunnel once you were in it? That's a good question. Because um, as you know, in the book, I talk about a lot of firsts. The first year is a first for everything. You know, so he died in July. It was his 40th birthday in August. It was our wedding anniversary in September, my birthday, October. It was Thanksgiving, my daughter's birthday in December, Christmas, New Year's. And in January, quite frankly, I had a nervous breakdown. I was sitting at my desk at work. I had been on a rehab uh, return to work program. I started back six weeks after he passed away and people thought I was nuts But I had to get up and be a role model for my child to go back to school in September. I couldn't very well say, oh, you know, you go get him, kiddo. Mommy's going to stay under the covers in the dark. I'll see you when you get home at four o'clock. I had to get up and get out so that she could too. But I started back two hours a day, worked my way back up to full time in January. But I had put, and I, I talk about this in the book, I put the superwoman cape on. I thought, what is wrong with you? You are an intelligent woman. You're an executive. You're well, you know, you've got you've got this. So like get 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 your act together, lady. And I just kept pulling the cape tighter and tighter around my neck. I use that as a as an example because and I was choking myself. So I fell apart in January. God bless my parents. They came back again. Now my parents were suffering and grieving and going through this. My mother told me before she died, after my dad died, she never thought my husband got my father got over losing my my husband because he was like a son. So they stayed with me and I had sold his motorcycle to his brother. And at Christmas, I had given my daughter a surprise. We were going, I was taking her on a cruise for March break because I thought we needed to get away somewhere and do something. My parents stayed with me until the day before. I put them on the plane the day after I put us on a plane. We went on the cruise and then I went to Vancouver for a week to be with my family. And that's when the light started to show a little bit for me. I couldn't have gotten through it without my family. They were my rock. And and my poor sister, I think she came to really hate the two hour time difference between Winnipeg and Vancouver because I'd call her sometimes absolutely distraught. And, you know, but that's that's where I felt like I started to come out the other side a little bit. So it took me from July till the following March. April. Now, when you reflect and, and Jane, I know that you've, you know, you've talked a lot about the subject. I mean, you, you talk to hundreds or perhaps thousands of people in terms of what you do for your career now and the business that you're building. I'm a little bit guarded around the question, but in reflection, can you look back now and, and see where you are today and, and look at those that, how those events shaped and molded who you are today as a business person and, 
as a as a speaker, as a leader, as a contribution to others. I, I don't want to say it's like I don't know how to phrase the question. I once again, as I as I look at the premise of the everyday millionaire is about ordinary people creating extraordinary results and the journey that got you to where you are today. In reflection, do you see just how powerful that's been in your development? It's interesting that you bring that up because a very good friend of mine who went through this journey with me, she's a very brilliant woman. And we were having dinner in January and she said to me, don't you wish this had all happened? Like, you know, all your success, everything you're doing, how you're helping other people. Don't you wish it had all come earlier? And I looked at her and I said, it couldn't have because I couldn't have done any of this until I went through all of those events, because all of those events have shaped where I am today. And, you know, when we decided to share our story, it never was supposed to look like this. It was, we made a conscious decision as a family that if we could help one family never to have to go through what the three of us went through, then it would be worth everything. I love my sister dearly, but I'll never forget her saying to me when I launched the book, how many copies did you print? I said, 250. She goes, what if you don't sell any? <laughs> I went, well, first of all, thank you for your support. But I looked at her and I said, that's not what this is about. This is about helping others. And the name of the book is With Stroke and Claim Your Life. So think about it, Patrick. Every time you put another piece in place, everything you do, you have to sign your signature. Mm -hmm. That's what binds things. When you do a will, you write, you have to sign it. When you get a mortgage, you have to sign it. When you buy a house, you have, you know, so your signature, but each time you do that, you claim a piece of your life because you've taken responsibility. You've put something in place. You've put a plan in place. That's where the name of the book came from. And so, you know, back to what you said, uh, I just didn't want to share the story. I wanted to equip people with knowledge and whatever. So I did two years of research with other financial advisors, with lawyers, with accountants, with the funeral funeral prearrangement specialist. I just about fell over when I found out that there was over 90 decisions you could have to make to plan a funeral. And I'll talk about that just quickly for a minute. Mm -hmm. He was 39. I tried four times to have a conversation with him about what he wanted if, God forbid, anything happened. He used to fly jets in the Air Force, and he used to drive fast motorcycles. He thought he was immortal. So he always turned it around to me. So I never knew what he wanted. So it was like somebody putting a set of handcuffs on you and saying, okay, now get, get yourself out of this. So back to, I can't decide if I want peas or carrots for dinner, and I'm trying to plan a funeral. I have to take his family into account, et cetera, et cetera. So I wanted to help people, and I wanted to provide questions too. It starts with us first. We have to have a courage. I'm a catalyst for courageous conversations. That's what I am. And I want to help people to have the first important conversation is with themselves, then how do you sit down and have a conversation with your family about what you want? Because funerals are for the living, they're not for the dead. So, you know, you've got to you've got to talk about this stuff. And then how do you involve the proper professionals? How do you talk to a financial advisor? What kinds of questions do you ask? Same with the lawyer, the accountant, the funeral. How do you pick executors? How do you pick legal guardians? I 
think these professionals are worth their weight in gold. Do not try and do this alone. A friend of mine is a lawyer with a very large firm here in Toronto. She says the largest litigation case that she's ever been involved in was because of a $29.99 will someone bought off the internet. So it's about engaging the right people. And it's about, you've got to get this done. My mantra is that we have an obligation to ourselves and to those we love to leave this world in an organized manner. Chaos should not ensue. You can't do that to your family. If you love somebody, you've got to love them beyond the grave as well. You can't just love them while you're here. So don't leave them with a royal mess. That's such a strong message that comes from having some education, some knowledge around it, you know, and sadly, it's in hindsight that so many people learn these lessons. You know, my dad, who passed away a year and a half ago, at 85 and had health issues, but God bless him, you know, for all the things that he, you know, was short-sighted on, he had a very, very strong will and plan for funeral. And so literally when he passed away, it happened to be Christmas Day, it was it was literally a phone call and everything was set into motion. And my mom, at you know, today at 89 years old, lives a great life. She's a healthy lady, you know, and and does all of the things that she does. But she didn't have to go through a lot of stress around arrangements and all those types of things. Now, having said all that, they had a very simple life. You know, he worked, he retired and, and it was pretty simple. I go back to, you know, the real estate investors or and the entrepreneurs that I know and that we have within our own community with the Real Estate Investment Network. And life is complicated. And and the reason I sh shine, want to shine a light on that $29.95 will on the internet, it's like, how can you say, you know, any clearer, don't do that because they don't work. They get you into trouble, you know, as you, as you said. And, and certainly, with people that have re real estate portfolios, we have the conversation, and, I, and I'd like to get this information from you, Jane, because I know you've done a lot of work around that, which is to say, if you've got a complicated portfolio of real estate, I'll just use that as an example. You know, you've got four or five joint venture partners, you've got two or three corporations. The last thing you want to do is make your non-educated sister or brother Executor. Executor of the will. I mean, imagine what the tailspin that would put them into if they had to deal with that kind of an estate. So, Or your children. Or your children. So when you're giving guidance, because now that you're where you're at, I know I'm jumping around a lot in the conversation because there's so many things I want to talk about with you. Um, I'm trying to not get off track, too far off track. What's some guidance that you give around that to the people that you speak with from stage around an executor as an example on a, on a complicated estate? One of the biggest pieces of advice I give is make sure you talk to the person about whether they really want to take on the role as an executor or not. I have seen so many people appoint an executor in their will, and the executor finds out after the person goes that they're the executor of the will. Mm. You have to ask the person if they will accept the responsibility, and you have to talk to them about what your wishes are. You know, there's a whole new liability insurance out there today for executors, and it's there for a reason, because in the book, I detail some of the things that people have to do as an executor, and it's a, it's a long laundry list 
People do not realize what the responsibilities of being an executor are. Same thing with a legal guardian for your children. You know, if you've got underage children, have you appointed a legal guardian in your will? And have you asked the people if they will accept the responsibility and will fulfill your wishes? You know, will planning is is so critical. And go back to something that you said. Your children, like let's say you're a single child. In my case, I have one, I have one daughter. So if anything happens to me, she's going to try to be dealing with losing her mother and trying to be the executor of the will as well. Ooh, that's a big load to put on a kid. So look at the age of your children as well. Are they mature enough to sit, you know, to accept that responsibility? Because you make you make a bunch of snap decisions. I'll, I'm going to digress just for a minute because I don't want to forget to share this story with you. Because there, as you know, with in the book, I'll either have you laughing or crying because there are funny things that happened along the way. And you know, if I hadn't had a sense of humor, I think I might have, uh, might have done me in. But when my husband passed away, I planned my own internment because I didn't want my only child to have that responsibility. So when I went to plan his interment, he's he was cremated and buried in a mausoleum um, outside because my daughter said, don't you dare, dare put him under the ground. And so I planned my internment. So fast forward, I'm remarried. And yet there is this lovely um, mausoleum where it's enough for two people. And his name is engraved. My first husband's name is engraved on one side, and it's all nice and shiny and pretty waiting for me. And I thought, uh-oh, what do I do now? Right. So I thought, okay. So I had a courageous conversation with myself first. And then I sat my second husband down, Michael, whom you've met. And I said, okay, you know, so here's the situation. I said, this is what I'd like to do. And he goes, all right. So then I called a family meeting. My daughter was 21 at the time. And I said, okay, so you know that when daddy passed away, I planned my own internment. Well, fast forward, I'm married to your stepdad. And she goes, oh, okay. I said, so I've made a decision. I want to go 50-50. She goes, pardon me? <laughs> That's <laughs> and great. I said, she goes, okay, okay, mom, wait a minute. And she's used to these kinds of conversations now. She goes, okay, that makes sense. You've loved two men. She says, but um, how do we decide which half goes where? <laughs> so I said, well, I told you I wanted to be cremated, right? She goes, yes. I said, okay, so just shake me up and divvy me down the middle. And my husband goes, great. I'll get the half that talks. <laughs> that's great. But, but you see, that's the kind of conversation you can have when it's not you're not riddled with emotion. Mm -hmm. You can't have that conversation when somebody's just passed away. So that's why I'm trying to get this conversation started. I'm so happy that you're, you know, joining me today on this call to really, I hope, get the message out to inspire people to actually start to have the conversations. You know, in the past four or five years, five years, I guess, you know, I've also lost two sisters to cancer. Oh. And those conversations I know they didn't have to the degree that they needed to have them with their families. And there's, you know, children, fortunately, adult children or young adult children. But life gets complicated when things are not looked after in advance. And 
the you know being proactive around it is a responsible thing to do, but it's a difficult thing to do. One of the things I like about the book and I love about what we've done with the rain vest binder, I want to share with you is, is Stephanie, my wife, read your book and she immediately, you know, called the office and talked to Cheryl and my EA and, and or my assistant and said, you know, Cheryl, I need a copy of that rain vest binder. I want to go through all the things that we've done and put it back in order. And that's what your book does. It actually is a checklist of things to do. So I know a lot of people get stuck just in the fact I don't even know where to start. And your, your book provides that kind of outline for people to check off. Okay, let's have this conversation. What do you want the funeral arrangements to do? Do you want to be cremated? Where do you want? There's a conversation for you. Where do you want to be buried? Because if you're a couple that significant other was born in another city, another province, another country. Another country. Yeah. Where do you want to, where do you want to be buried or cremated, whatever that might look like. Now, what have you kind of gained and what kind of, information or what are you seeing with people as you have conversations with them? Because as a speaker, you're actually dealing with people that are asking you these kind of questions and sharing their stories with you. Is there been some big aha moments for you in even? Oh, yeah. Yeah. What would you what would you share around that? I've had literally had people in my arms crying because their parents won't tell them what they want. They've tried to have the conversation with their elderly parents and the parent refuses to speak about it. So the child, again, almost feels like they've had a set of handcuffs put on them. I had one young lady tell me that she took the book, sat down with her 93-year-old grandmother and said, Nona, we need to talk. Nobody knows what your wishes are. I want to change that conversation. She says, it took two hours. They cried. They laughed. She says, I learned more about my grandmother in that two hours. And at the end of it, she said, my grandmother turned to me and thanked me with tears in her eyes because she said, thank you for the gift you have just given me because now I know my wishes will be respected. I have had people who have poured their heart out to me about the fact that, uh, give you another story, this fellow that brought me in to do a speaking engagement, started telling me on the phone about his brother and his wife who wanted them to act as the executors, but he wouldn't put any life insurance in place. He wouldn't buy, he wouldn't get his will done. And he says, I cannot put my own family in jeopardy that if my brother and my sister-in-law die in a car accident together, I have to raise their two children in addition to my two children, and because my brother-in-law won't get any life insurance, I'm supposed to pay for their education. That will affect our life, our children, our retirement, everything. So what I did was I asked him if I could send him a copy of the book with a note to his sister and brother-in-law and asked them if they would just read it. And he said, you would do that? And I said, by all means. He gave the book to them. They read the story. And they came back and apologized for what they had put him through. And they went out and they got their act together. They got things put in place. And he said, he said, the power, and I'll, I'll back up here for a minute. I don't work for a life insurance company. I'm not licensed to sell life insurance anymore. I don't get into product discussion. I stay above that. There's professionals out there who do that. I recommend everybody goes and sees those professionals. I'm talking about reality and the sharing the story to get people to go, this really could happen. And what people have said to me is because I'm an impartial third party and I'm not trying to sell anybody anything, they get it. 
they start to get it. This is a real live person just like me who has a family, who has responsibilities, has a mortgage, has a this, has a that. And so, okay, nobody's trying to sell me anything. This is reality, folks. And I'm finding that that is one of the biggest pluses I have trying to go into this area to discuss this. And I, I can, I can, I can get people to talk about this when a lot of other people can't. And I've had handwritten notes. I've had people call after they've seen me on TV and say, oh my goodness, thank you for sharing your story. You know, I've been trying to talk to my husband or my spouse or whatever. And you got the conversation started. Back to my comment. I'm a catalyst for courageous conversations. I mean, I think it's such a amazing contribution that you are to be that catalyst. I got a couple of questions. One's really kind of more of a technical, let's get intellectual. The other is you talk to a lot of people who are dealing with what they're dealing with, the aftermath, and then you're talking to people who are resistant to talking about it. How do you handle the kind of, do you find that you're as a speaker and as a coach that how do you avoid being on an emotional roller coaster? I've even found that having this conversation with you, I've felt my own emotions. And so how do you deal with it on, on a regular daily basis, almost, I'm sure, people who are resisting, people who have been through it, and you're trying to say, don't do what they did or don't do what I did. You need to handle this. And how do you get through that? Like, how do you, what's your mindset around that, Jane? I learned the hard way. Uh, a couple of times I had a company that brought me in to do four speeches in two days. And by the last speech, I couldn't even speak properly. I couldn't even remember my name because it's a very emotional. You can hear it in my voice. Mm -hmm. I get emotional about this because the one thing about losing someone, grief and everything, is it can hit you out of the left field. Mm -hmm. Even though it's been, he died back in 1999. I still get emotional every time I tell the story. It's like it happened 10 minutes ago. Mm -hmm. You can't block your brain off from that or your emotions off from that. So I've had to be very careful about guarding my own emotions. My husband is in business with me now. And the best thing that happens is when he can travel with me and be with me because he sort of protects me. He keeps me grounded and he... Um, sounds kind of weird. He protects me in a way because he gets me away from people that want to just come up and talk to me. And he, he says to me, no, no, you go over there, you go take some deep breaths. So I've learned a whole bunch of things before I go on stage. I don't interact with people. I just get my own headspace together and get myself ready because usually by the end of the me speaking, I'm in tears. And I've had people say to me, why didn't you tell me I needed Kleenex to listen to you? Like mm. I've literally, Patrick, <laughs> I've literally seen people wiping their eyes with the tablecloths in a ballroom. <laughs> <laughs> and I've had people going, why didn't you tell me I had to have Kleenex uh. to listen to you talk? So I'm having to be more careful about this. I had a really busy year last year, speaking right up until almost Christmas time. And we've buried all four parents since my second husband and I have been together. And I lost my, my heart went out to you when you said when you lost your dad, because I lost my dad in 2003, December the 10th, and my mom in 2004, December 31st. So Christmas, 
December is a hard time for me. Mm-hmm. And I just, I sort of hit the wall at the end of the year because I hadn't listened to, like I say, when I'm coaching my clients, self-care is paramount, take care of yourself first. And I didn't listen to my own advice. So I have to be really careful with this. And sometimes, sometimes it's overwhelming. So I want to go to the intellectual question now, which is around life insurance and insurance in general. Because as I'm talking to people about it, and I've had my own conversations with myself and my wife as well around the cost of insurance, number one, you know, and, and you know, now at 59 years old, you know, insurance, as I've taken on partners and expanded business, and I mean, insurance becomes an expensive endeavor and, and a cost. There is a certain, I guess, story that I hear people tell themselves around what you can't trust in the insurance industry. Insurance industry are, they're not snake oil salesmen. That's not the reputation. It's a very, you know, and and that's, and I, and I think it's a, such an important part of it. So I, I don't follow that train of thought, but I do know people live in that world where they just don't trust insurance salesmen. And that's old stories perhaps, but what, how do you deal with those kinds of conversations? What's your message to people around life insurance and how they deal with their provider and the sales guy and how do they make those decisions? It's always a shame when people are tarred and feathered by feathered by the actions of one person. So, you know, it can happen. You can have, you know, a bad life insurance advisor. You can have a bad real estate advisor. Like, unfortunately, life happens. So we can't get around that. But you know what the interesting thing is, Patrick? I've been involved in the insurance industry since 1982. And it's really interesting that I have never once heard of a widow or a widower who is receiving a life insurance death claim, go, no thanks, I'm fine, you keep it. That has never happened. I have seen life insurance companies, I've been fortunate enough to work behind the scenes with them. I have seen them pay out some claims that they probably could have denied, but there is a real sense of helping Canadians, helping people, being there for them. They're not trying to rip people off. They're, they've paid so much money into communities over the years in terms of death claims, in terms of critical illness, disability, all of these things. And, you know, it's I, I've heard people talk about the cost of insurance. Think about the cost of having to live without it. Mm-hmm. I will never in my lifetime pay out as much in premiums as I have received. Never. As long as I live. And I've done so much with my life insurance. I've I've purchased real estate as a result of owning it. I have, you know, been able to self-finance my own cars. I've been able to do so many wonderful things with it. And life insurance is for the living. That's who it's for. You buy life insurance because you love someone or you want to protect something. So, you know, listen, your listeners that are on here listening to this today. It's something to think about. You know, you're amassing all of this real estate and you're putting all of these joint ventures in place and you're partnering with people and all of these sort of things. Well, wouldn't you like your legacy to be that you left it in sound shape when you went instead of having people go, oh, if only that had taken care of something before something happened. You don't want your legacy to be that you've left your family financially vulnerable, strapped or out there on a ledge with nowhere to go. You want to make sure that when you go, they can grieve you 
or your business partners can continue the business. Like I'm really big on partners, making sure that they have disability buyouts and funded by sell agreements with life insurance, with wills drawn up by lawyers and whatever. There's so many things you can do to make it so much easier. So those are the type of things to answer your question that I say. Don't look at what's happened maybe one or two off. Look at the big picture. And, you know, I remember I remember not long after my husband died, one of my hobbies is interior decorating. And I was helping a friend of mine do her home. And we went to Home Depot one night. And she trotted off. I was sitting by the paint desk. And I talked to everybody. So got talking with the guy and I said, so how are you doing? We're watching the paint shake. And I said, so how how are you doing? He goes, I'm exhausted. And I said, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. He goes, you know, I'm running two, I'm working at two jobs here. He says, this isn't my, I run an advertising company and I do this as well and blah, blah, blah. So what happens when somebody usually asks you what you do? The other person says, so what do you do? And I said, actually, I'm running a training center here in Winnipeg for, you know, such and such company goes, doing what? I said, training new financial advisors, you know, and he goes, oh, great. He says, what a ripoff that is. And I thought, oh, I'm probably the wrong person for you to have had that response. So I just very quietly sat there with him. I said, you know, I'm really sorry to hear that you feel that way. I said, because I don't feel that way. And I shared a bit of my story with him. And I said, you know, just And he he looked at me and he says, oh, I'm so sorry. He says, I feel terrible for having blurted that out now that you've shared your story with me. He says, I just, I, I, please accept my apologies. I'm so sorry. I said, you know, maybe just next time before you just blurt out an answer, just think for a minute. I walked away and realized I'd left my gloves there, turned around and went back. He excused himself with the client he was serving, came over to me and he said, I I'm sick to my stomach for what I said to you. But he says, you know what I'm going to do when I go home tonight? I said, what? He says, I'm going to kiss my wife and my children because I can. And then I'm pulling my life insurance policies out of my study door uh, desk. And I'm calling my life insurance agent because I don't have enough life insurance. I said, God bless you. Mm. And that's the difference that I hope that this podcast and this interview with you makes, Jane, is it's such an important conversation. And you put some pretty serious meat on the bone in terms of its relevancy and how important it is having gone through it the way you've gone through it. And when you describe your business now, I just kind of want to hear a little bit about what it is that you do in your business now. What is it, what your your training, your coaching are you in the financial services industry coaching them? What's your, what's your, what's the main, I guess, what is your business really all about? So um, we've just amalgamated our two businesses. We had two, we had, my husband used to be in the renovation business, but we've closed that down, amalgamated it in. And so now we have the Blofus Group Incorporated. And what we do basically is my husband runs the operations for the, the business. I'm the face, the marketing and sales of it which works works out beautifully because neither one of us really like the other side. So this is a match made in heaven. So I coach a lot of financial advisors, but I also coach entrepreneurs. And I had somebody ask me in the in the financial services industry, so what makes you different? Like there's so many coaches out there. Everybody's got a, you know, everybody's got a coach these days. He says, what makes you different? 
I said, I know the financial services industry intimately, but I'm also a successful entrepreneur. But I, so what I do differently is I teach advisors how to be business owners and to know their numbers. And that's one of the big things I do when I'm coaching entrepreneurs. I'm no longer flabbergasted at how many entrepreneurs have no idea what the numbers in their business are. They have no idea whether they're broke or making money. They're just out there with a new idea and no plan. So I do a lot of strategic planning and I do coaching with them. I also am an international speaker. I do a lot of speaking in the insurance industry, but I also do a lot of client appreciation events where I actually speak with the public. So my mission is twofold. One is to change the pride and the perception of the life insurance industry from the inside out, one advisor at a time, because I want advisors to stand up and I want them to tell people, I sell life insurance and you probably should sit down and have a conversation with me if you haven't had one with someone already, because this stuff's important. I want them to stop apologizing for what they do. The other mission I'm on, and I've already succeeded in starting a movement, is to get people to have these courageous conversations with themselves and with their families. And I'm proud to say that I'm a best-selling self-published author. I now have spoken around the world. I've started thousands and thousands and thousands of these conversations, and I've helped a lot of people to get past a very difficult hurdle getting these conversations started. So I write, I'm a Huffington Post blogger, and I use a platform whenever I can. I've been on national TV and radio. Um, I've had an opportunity to work with people such as yourself and Richard and whatever, and I'm not finished. I'm about to come out with the third edition of my book this year, where I, I'm going to be adding an afterword to it. Because a lot of people have said to me that, I should share with my readers where I am today because you've heard of PTSD, right? Sure. Post-traumatic stress disorder. You bet. Have you heard of the new syndrome out there called post-traumatic growth syndrome? I've not. So what that is, and it's only starting to come to the surface over the last few years, and it's almost the same as when somebody goes through a trauma in their life. Some people, unfortunately, fall onto the depression side and have a hard time coming back from that. PTGS is where you take a tragedy and you actually grow from it. So I fall onto the PTGS side. Sure. I didn't become depressed. I went through a period of depression, but I... I've come out of it the other side, and now I've grown from it. So what, as I said, started out as a book to help just one person, now is a movement. And I've become a best-selling author, and I have a voice, and I have a platform. And the feedback that I've been getting from people is that I've managed to do something that a lot of people can't, haven't been able to do, which is to take a very personal and very powerful story and turn it around to help other people. I've carved quite a niche out for myself with this. And plus, as one senior executive said to me, please don't get this wrong, but he says, the fact that you're a woman helps. I went, okay, thank you. So our business is, is the three, key three things that I do is speaking, writing, and coaching. I get from all of this as I listen to you, Jane, is that 
you know, we talk about passion and business and all the rest of it, but I think this, aside from just the energy and the passion that you bring to it, this sounds a lot just like a calling for you. This is something that you're driven to do and that it's such a powerful message and it will make such, and it can have such an impact in people's lives that you've latched on or you've recognized that this is really your calling. This is what you have to do. Is that, is that the case for you? Exactly. It took me until I was 55 to figure out who I was supposed to be when I grew up. Right. And I'm not, a, I'm not trying to sound like I'm, you know, standing on a pulpit or something here, but I know what I'm supposed to do. I know why God put me here. I am supposed to, he gave me a big mouth for a reason and I'm supposed to use it because this conversation has to be had and there aren't enough people out there that are driving this. So yes, you're right. This is this is my life. This is my passion. This is the work I want to do. I'm meant to do. I get up every morning thankful I can do it. And it was interesting. My cousin said to me not too long ago, says, so when are you going to retire? I said, that word is not in my vocabulary. If people will listen to me, or people will pay me to stand up till I'm 90 and talk about this, as long as I'm coherent and not drooling on myself, I'm going to continue this conversation. My husband was very kind to tell me afterwards he didn't care if I was in diapers and a wheelchair, he'd still push me out on the stage. I <laughs> That's said, nice of him, yes. <laughs> yeah, I said, great, don't get dementia and leave me there or something. But you're right, this this is a calling for me. It's it, it totally is. It's such an important conversation, and it's why I'm really, really happy to have it with you on the show. I think it's such a, a contribution to the listeners. And but I also want to say, you know, there's a there's that phrase along the lines of, you know, with with great wealth comes great responsibility. And even if we take the great wealth out of it, it is a a real responsibility that we have to leave those behind us in a way that is responsible, that shows and is really that we're caring about all of this because it is a very complicated kind of conversation to have. It's an emotional conversation to have. When I look at the process of what it takes, you've outlined that. I think that is, for me, is probably one of the biggest, as I've spoke with so many people and have conversations with so many people around this particular topic, The what you've done is you've actually put it in a box in a way that people can wrap their mind around in a step-by-step. And you've added some story to it, which gives it you know that much more impact. And I think that is such a service to people. And if they could just get that message, which is to have the difficult, the courageous conversations, as you say, and to go through it. I, I just want to emphasize that. I, I think that, you know, you and I are both on that same page, but I also know how hard of work it is. Let's not joke I mean, around. Like, let's, let's be serious. It's, it's simple in conversation, but it certainly isn't easy. Oh, it's not. If, if it was easy, everybody would be doing it. Mm-hmm. But you know, the, Patrick, the words I hate more than any other words in the English language are a trust fund has been created. Mm. That is code for not enough life insurance, for not proper planning. They've left, somebody's left someone they love in the dark, in a lurch and whatever. And you can't, you can't do that. You just cannot do that. As I said, if it was an easy conversation, everybody would be having it. And you and I would not be having this conversation. I had a lawyer 
um, who read the book and and looked at the work I'd done around the binder and whatever say to me, this is I've been at this for 35 years. He says, I've never seen it as well laid out as this is laid out. He says, this is like planning for dummies. I said, well, good. If you don't, I hope you don't mind if I don't market it quite that way. But my goal with the book, and you've alluded to this, was my my vision for this book is that people will be running around with this book and it'll be dog-eared because, as you said, it's mapped out the way it's mapped so that if somebody goes to see a lawyer and the lawyer says, now I want you to go see your accountant and you need to talk to the accountant about this, I want them to write it down in the book, not on a piece of paper they're going to lose or another sticky note or whatever, it's all in one place. And when you've done something, you've gone check. Because think about what that does to the brain. It's like if you have a to-do list, every time you scratch something off or check it off, it makes you feel like you've accomplished something. And I'm not saying people need to sit down and do all their planning in one fell swoop. That's overwhelming for people. So the way I've tried to do it is just follow. It's a roadmap. It's a 30-page checklist at the back of the book, and all you have to do is follow the roadmap. You have to have conversations along the way, because I ask a lot of, as you know from reading the book, I ask what I intend them to be as thought-provoking questions, because people don't think about this stuff. They are very thought-provoking. There's no doubt about that. Because, you know, you're talking about life insurance. People say, well, you know, I remember when I was was doing it myself, I could do a fact find with a client and come out and say, you need $2 million worth of life insurance. And they'd look at me and go, what? But people don't understand how you get to those figures. But if you, if you go through the process and read the book and ask yourself some of the questions, you can start to understand why some of those figures may be there. I think there's a couple things, you know, too, that people can, you know, people listening is to understand that this isn't something you're going to do in a week or even, uh, you know, you know, certainly not a day or a week. It it will take weeks and even months to go through to actually go through the process. And, and it, it is layers of things that have to be done and discussions that have to be had and thought has to be given. And there's all the emotional things that might show up. I can't help but think that a lot of your passion and inspiration about this is that you've seen the other side with so many other people, those individuals that, you know, wake up and have had the, you know, the unfortunate experience of losing a significant other, and they don't have anything in place. So I'm sure that there's a lot of stories that you've heard and that you've been part of when these plans haven't been put in place. I mean, you and your husband had some things in place. You had a lot of things in place and you weren't even close to being, you know, having what you needed. So it's got to be pretty traumatic or it's got to be pretty emotional for you to hear the stories of people that don't have life insurance. They don't have a will. They've done no planning. They've got a real, I guess, you know, a mess that is left to them to handle. You know, I was speaking in Wisconsin the other week and a young lady came up to me after I spoke and she, she looked at me and she said, I don't have enough life insurance. And she's a life insurance advisor. And I said, well, what are you going to do about it? She says, I can't do anything right now. And I looked at her and I said, why? She says, because I just had the second of stroke in the last six months and I'm only 32 years old. 
Wow. I, she was crying. So what, what was I doing? I was standing there with my arms around her, holding her. I've held more crying people who've come up to me and said, if only my husband, you know, would have listened or if only my parents would have done something. And it's heartbreaking, Patrick. It's absolutely, it breaks my heart because I'm a very emotional person. And when I talk about this subject after having been there and I go back to what I said, I hate the words, a trust fund has been created. There's no need for it in this day and age. And the other thing that I always hear from people who've been through this and have received a a death check or a critical illness check or a disability check or whatever, the thing I always hear is people say, and I was there too. I wish there'd been more zeros on the end of the check. What what advice would you give to somebody? You know, first off, I guess, is there a trend? Do you see a trend that it's more men not willing to have the conversation, more women? Do you find that it's, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking it's usually the wives that would have to drive the conversation. I don't know that's true. That's my own story. But what advice would you give anybody to even have this courageous conversation if somebody doesn't want to have it? Well, I've, I've had people ask me that question what do I do? I've tried and tried and tried. So what I usually suggest is I usually suggest they give them a copy of my book and ask them to read it. And then if you still don't want to have a conversation, then I say to the person, you might want to be reevaluating what's going on in your relationship. Because if that person does, as I said before, people buy life insurance because they love someone or they love something. And there comes a point where Sometimes you just have to you have to give up. Right. You just you just have to give up sometimes because that person doesn't love somebody as much as you think they do. Because if you love someone, you'll do everything you can to protect them. Like my husband loved me enough and my second husband's the same way. My <laughs> the big joke in our house is I know for sure my husband doesn't have AIDS because he's bought enough life insurance that he's been through the medicals <laughs> and the blood work and everything. <laughs> So when your spouse loves you enough, when you say, we need to do this or we need to do that, and they say, okay, honey, do I need a medical and where do I have to sign? Then then you know you're in sync with each other. But men are more reluctant to have this conversation, I've found. But there's a lot of women out there as well. But the other thing I've also found is there's a statistic out there. A number of widows will change their husband's financial advisor within three to six months after their death because they have no relationship with them. So one of the things I'm very big on is that everybody in the family needs to know what's going on with the finances. It's not one person, you know, one person can do the bookkeeping if they want, but the other person needs to know what's going on financially in the house. And you need to know all of the professionals. The time to meet somebody is not in the 11th hour. You do not want a stranger coming into your house. The day my husband died, I made three critical phone calls. The first was to break the news to my parents and my daughter. The second was to break the news to my husband's family. And the third person I called that day was my life insurance advisor because I knew everything that went on in our house financially, but I have never been so terrified in my life. And I wanted somebody I knew and trusted who I knew would never hurt me to answer one question for me. And the question was, will we be all right? Because I didn't think I'd ever be all right again. Wow. Well, Jane, I think we've put a 
gosh, I, I hope we've driven the point home and given some people some real insights and food for thought, and food for food thought, for and thought. some nuggets of information. So I always like to kind of wrap up and you know think about you know I, I would like to get to know you a little bit more and have our listeners get to know you a little bit more about what's behind the scenes of things and who you are and how you've evolved as a person. So. Once again, in the in the spirit of the everyday millionaire and success, we know that, you know, if I'm recapping, if you're on your journey and if you're a young listener, these are things that you want to start early. The earlier you start having these thoughts and around planning, the better it is. You know, secondly, if you haven't had those courageous conversations with your significant other, it's time to have them and draw your, you know, hopefully even some of your children, your children into the conversation, depending on their age, of course. Uh, one of the things that I've learned in talking to people around guardianship is that you have to consider, do you want your children to be with a particular guardian? It may, you may not even agree with how your, your brother, you know, raises children. So it's like, it's something to have a conversation about. And so there's lots of lessons in this whole conversation, but aside from all of that, tell me about you. I want to know a little bit about um, you in that. How do you think now? So one of the questions I like to ask is that, when you're having a bad day and we all have them and when everything seems to be going wrong, what's your thought process? How have you, you know, you're very resilient. So what's your mindset around the success that you have and how do you get through those really tough, you know, tough days business-wise? Well, you know what, if anybody tells you every day is a cakewalk, then they're lying. Sure. I'm sorry. Every, everybody has ups and downs. It was, I found it more difficult when I was working by myself. Isolation is not a good thing as an entrepreneur. So I would suggest that one, you stay connected with people because I personally get my energy from people and I can always equate my lack of energy to my lack of relationship building. Because as I told you, that's a big thing with me. You know, some days you're going to have a bad day and it's okay to acknowledge it and to have a bit of a pity party, but just don't stay in the pity party for three days. Give yourself, you know, a, an amount of time to feel sorry for yourself. And then you got to pick yourself back up and start over again. And as an entrepreneur, everything you try is not going to work. So if you set yourself up with an unrealistic expectation that every idea that you're going to have is going to be a moneymaker or whatever, that you're going to buy property and you're going to make gazillions or never lose money, that's not the way the real world works. And it, you just have to trust your gut. You know, the big thing in our house at the end of the day, quite frankly, Patrick, is we look at each other and we go, nobody died. This too shall pass. You can always rebound from it. You can get around it. You can start over, but nobody died. This too shall pass. So I think that's the big, one of the big things. What do you, uh, what would you tell your 20 year old self today? If you could go back, trust your gut, believe in yourself. You'll get a lot of stuff, right? You'll get some stuff wrong, but trust yourself and be courageous and realize that not everybody's going to like you, and that's okay. But just as long as you like yourself, then you're going to be okay, girl. What advice would you give your 75-year-old self? Don't give up. There's there's more to come. Keep on keeping on. Like I said, my cousin said, when are you going to retire? What, what am I supposed to do? Watch the paint dry? Yeah. There's only so many times I can remodel my house. You know, I I want to be on this earth for a long time. And one of the things that my 75-year-old self 
should say to myself when I'm 75 is, okay, what are you going to do when you're 85? What are you going to do when you're 90? There's a lot more life left out there. I, mean, I love the fact that people, you know, you look at the Jane Fondas of the world and you look at these people that are still out there rocking it in their 90s. I want to be one of those people. You know, I used to, uh, when I used to be a, I used to run and I do half marathons primarily and I, and I love to work out and I work out on a regular basis. But I remember running one day and I'm jogging down the street and, and I'm probably mid forties at that time. And this gentleman kind of chugged past me and he must've been early seventies. And I remember looking at myself saying, I want to be that guy when I'm 70 some years old, because it was amazing. He passed me and, and, you know, kind of gave me a nod of the head as he looks over and, you know, chugs past me and he's, you know, 30 years older than I am. So I, I, I have that goal. I want to be that guy. Well, I look at some of these women that are still running marathons at, at uh, 100. I can't even <laughs> run one now, you know, but, yeah. but I think I, th I think one of the biggest things that I, that I hate to see is that you also have to have a passion outside of just what you do for a living, because if you don't have that and you stop, then there's nothing else to to fill your heart, to, to bring you joy, to make you want to get out of bed in the morning. Like I, I hate it when I see somebody who retires at 65 and they're gone the year later because they had nothing outside of their work. Make sure, you know, your 20 year old self, your 75 year old self, make sure you have a network, you have people around you, you have things to do, you have excitement in your life. I went to Thailand in March. Oh my God, what a trip. It was just amazing. So You've got to excite your senses because if you don't, you're going to get to be pretty boring yourself. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? So yeah. if uh, if heaven exists and uh, you're at the pearly gates, what do you hope God says to you? Come on in. Come on in. Welcome. You've done a great job. Yep. Come on in. That's great. Come on in. What are you grateful for, Jane? I'm I'm grateful for a second chance. I'm grateful for being given the opportunity to live and love and live and love again, because I really never thought it was going to happen. I'm so thankful for my, my husband, Michael, and for my daughter and so proud of her because she could have, she could have gone the other way and said, oh, the world owes me a living. I lost my father, but she's never acted that way because her father taught her that every day was a gift and it should never be wasted. So I'm grateful for all of that. Jane, I'm so grateful for having you on the show today and the message that you brought with you and for getting to know you in uh, in a whole new way and being able to share this message with the listeners. And I look forward to getting to know you better. And I want to thank you for being on the show. Your message powerful. Such a great, great message. So important. As difficult as these courageous conversations have to be, I think that it's a necessary thing and it certainly is a value to anybody listening in today. Well, Patrick, thank you for inviting me. And also I want to congratulate you because what I've seen with your organization and been privy to is that you guys go beyond what a lot of other organizations do. You really do care about the whole being of your listeners and the people that are involved with RAIN and whatever. And that is very, very commendable. And I'm happy that I, I can help in any way. So continue the good work. Well, thanks very much for that, Jane. And we'll talk again. Thank you. I hope so. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. 
If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others, share with your friends. As it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener, if you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, Patrick out.